Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast series focusing on critical business decisions. Brought to you by Brady Ware and Company. Brady Ware is a regional, full-service accounting and advisory firm that helps businesses and entrepreneurs make visions a reality. Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast giving you, the listener, clear vision to make great decisions. In each episode, we will discuss the process of decision-making on a different topic from the business owner's or executive's perspective. We aren't necessarily telling you what to do, but we can put you in a position to make an informed decision on your own and understand when you might need help along the way. My name is Mike Blake, and I'm your host for today's program. I'm a director at Brady Ware & Company, a full-service accounting firm based in Dayton, Ohio, with offices in Dayton, Columbus, Ohio, Richmond, Indiana, and Alpharetta, Georgia. Brady Ware is sponsoring this podcast, which is being recorded in Atlanta for social distancing protocols. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcast aggregator, and please consider leaving a review of the podcast as well. So today's topic is, should I sell to the government? And, um, you know, this is a topic I, I've, I've wanted to do for a while, um, and I think it's it's even more important now, given given the state of, of, of our economy and again, the, uh, the slow moving horror movie uh, continues that we hope we're, we're kind of reaching at least the final act of this thing. Um, and, and, you know, I think that, I think that most companies, most business owners have thought about, you know, can I sell to the government? Should I sell to the government? And it's certainly worth thinking about because I read somewhere that in fact, the government does, buy about $20 billion of stuff every day. And that $20 billion of stuff includes things from pencils to laptops to cars to airplanes, and as it also happens, spacecraft. More on that in a minute. Um, but I think, many, I think many owners then don't pursue the notion or the idea of selling to the government because they have some concept or some preconceived notion or some misapprehension of what it's like to sell to the government and do business with the government. And maybe some of those things are true. Maybe some of those things are not. So I think what we're going to do maybe today is do a little bit of myth busting um, because, you know, if you could afford to not try to sell to the government before, I think most companies now are in a position where you can't afford to walk away from clients even if they force you maybe to leave your comfort zone a bit in order to, um, in order to conclude a sale. And to help us with that, uh, I am bringing on a, a guest that I've wanted to bring on for a while. He's been harder to catch without a taser and a butterfly net because you know, he's been busy building his company. Um, but, but he's a guy that I'm, I'm so excited to bring on. I'm excited to really talk to him any opportunity I get because you know, I've, I've known him for a long time. I've known him since he's been with his company. And, you know, I, I can tell you that, you know, right now, knock on wood, I don't want to jinx him, but his company is enjoying some, some success. Um, believe me that the, the road to that success has been paved with broken glass and he has crawled it um, both ways up and down the hill, however you want to, however you want to, 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 to do, to express it. And, you know, throughout that, you know, I know that it's, it's been, it's been mentally, emotionally, physically challenging as an entrepreneur to, to do what he has done. And quite candidly, 
I think I think lesser men would have been broken. They would have given up. Um, and uh, you know, he deserves all the credit. And he's just you know through all that, he's been authentic. He's been nice. He's 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 been humble. And, and continues to be that way. And he's just one of the, the most awesome dudes you're ever going to deal with and just such an easy guy to root for. And when you listen to this, you're going to hear that in his voice. So, you know, plan to take notes. If you're listening to this while you're driving, jogging, whatever, don't take notes while you're doing that. Um, but plan to listen to this later or plan to go download the, um, uh, the transcript, which is going to be on our, our website, bradyware.com. Um, but th- this is going to be a good one. Um, and so it is my absolute pleasure to introduce my friend, Sean Mahoney, who is the CEO of Maston Space Systems, an aerospace research and development and flight service company that creates and deploys reliable, reusable rocket vehicles and components. Since joining Maston in 2010 as director of business operations, Sean is focused on building a sustainable, customer-funded business. He has been instrumental in establishing Maston as one of the rising stars in the new space movement. He served as C- sorry, Chief Operating Officer during 2011 and 2012 and was named Chief Executive Officer in 2013. Sean has over four- 15 years of corporate and technology industry experience, having founded and led a number of technology startup ventures and raised multiple rounds of private funding. Sean began his career overseeing technical sales and building internal organizations as a manager at AT&T's enterprise hosting division. Sean received his MBA from Emory University's Goizueta Business School and serves in a leadership capacity for a number of entrepreneurship and environmental nonprofit organizations. Sean, thank you so much for coming on the program. Mike, uh, a real pleasure. Thanks to you for all of your support over the years, and thanks to uh, folks there at Brady Ware for sponsoring this podcast and giving us a platform to talk about, you know, all this cool stuff, uh, a little bit of space, a little bit of government, uh, and a lot of sales. So this is really cool. And, uh, you know, I really appreciate the introduction. I hope to live up to <laughs> the hype. Uh, I think, I, I, I think you will. This is not going to be a Batman movie for sure, but, um, Good. you know, uh, I, but I would like you, I don't, I don't do it justice. I, I, and in fact, I probably only know 30% of what you've gone through. <laughs> um, but, but can you take a couple minutes and sort of tell the Maston story? And I've hinted at your success, but A, I want to do it justice and B, I want to give you the opportunity to kind of express it. You know, wh- what is the Maston story and, and where are you guys now? I, yes, thank I will endeavor to, give you a, a version of that that's shorter than the 16-year history of the company. Let me just do one thing. I will tell you all about Maston, um, but I want to make sure just in case someone only listens this far, the one key takeaway for this whole government sales thing is, unlike perhaps other things where you just need to have someone who wants to buy a thing and they have the money to pay you, government Sales requires having a third thing, which is the contract vehicle. They need to be a way to pay you that thing they want to buy. And if nothing else, maybe pay, folks can take that away. But now let's I'll, I'll, we'll come back and explain what all that means. <laughs> I just want to right. sure got enough. that plug in up front. Uh, so uh, I first encountered Maston um, hanging out down around Georgia Tech on uh, the Technology Square. Uh, and uh, honestly, this is 
it was a, uh, a, a true networking breakfast that I attended on a fairly regular basis, hosted by Stephen Fleming, who uh, you know, used to run ATDC and a bunch of the stuff there at Tech Square. And the conversations in this open breakfast were really just about anything. It was about different startups and what they were doing. And there was usually some football talk and usually some Georgia, Georgia Tech rivalry stuff, uh, some politics. And then every morning that conversation, every Monday morning, this conversation would eventually turn to the topic of discussing space. And there would be a 15 minute conversation about space policy because there were some space, not only enthusiasts, but people who were active in the space world. Um, Stephen Fleming, Mike Mealing, Colin Ake, uh, and others that were interested in working in space. And I used to, it was, I just thought it was the funniest thing. I would tell people the weirdest part of my week is the 15 minutes every Monday morning where I get to have a real conversation about space policy and it's not a joke, like it's a real conversation. At that time, I had no idea that I would wind up working in the space industry for Mastin or even running it. But for years, I would tell that story. It's like, oh my God, you should come to this breakfast. It's the coolest thing. And we have this odd conversation. So at that time, Mastin was competing for an X Prize. It was the Northrop Grumman NASA Centennial Challenge Lunar Lander Challenge, sponsored by XPRIZE. I think I got all of them in there. And this was phenomenal. I sat uh, in you know, another one of those, in a cafe down there near Tech Square, and watched on Friend's laptop as the company competed for this big XPRIZE. And what the company was doing, what the prize was, was demonstrating the ability to take off and land like you would do from lunar orbit to the surface, refuel, and then do it again. That, that team of mast and space systems at the time was a dark horse. No one expected for them to win. There was a anointed big name company uh, that was, that was going to win. And mast and space systems won that, that contest. And that's, there's phenomenal stories about the vehicle burning up on the pad the day before it flew and won first play all this stuff. It's, it's phenomenal. And, my story with the company starts to come in after that win. Six months after they won a million dollars, the folks that I knew were like, hey, um, apparently we need to raise some money because a million dollars doesn't get you that far, uh, which is true in space, but is also true like for any aspiring entrepreneurs, you think a million dollars, if you think about it in your bank account, Sounds like a lot of money. If you think about it in the operating account for paying for salaries and everything else, it's really yep. not that much money. Payroll um, really it, changes that equation. It, it turns out it does. <laughs> uh, and so that, that was how I kind of started getting involved to help bring some of the, um, it was the decision science background and kind of structuring some of the, the, the payload uh, opportunities and the sales opportunities and helping structure things. And that was how I first got involved with the company. Uh, and the challenge at that point was we had won an XPRIZE. The other company that had won an XPRIZE before us had turned into this company called Virgin Galactic. So hmm. Spaceship One and the $10 million Ansari XPRIZE 
had turned into Virgin Galactic. Mastin wins a $1 million X prize. We're trying to figure out what do we turn it into? And so I honestly came in to figure that out, to help figure that out. Um, and it was one of those, one of those things that I, we really didn't know what it was going to be. And to, to state it bluntly, we didn't have a big runway. We didn't have a billionaire. Um, my first day on payroll, there were 42 days of cash in the bank. Hmm. And some of my advisors that I still respect to this day had said, this is a terrible idea, Sean. <laughs> you've, you've gone through enough of these different startups and they just, you know, you got to find something that's going to stick. This one is the craziest one yet. Um, and when I present... <laughs> This period of time of different crazy business ideas, it absolutely is the craziest, hands down. Uh, but it had, Mastin had three things that I was personally looking for. I was looking for an emerging market that was transitioning from the domain of deep experts to a broader audience, kind of like think internet business, internet video. Uh, green tech, right? These are all trans, they, they were moving from deep expertise to a broader application. I was looking for uh, working technology because I know how hard it is. It seems so easy to take that idea and get a prototype, but getting the prototype is really important. So I said, I want, I want to look for a company that's got a work, working technology and has got a good team, like, like a good place to work, a good team to work with. And Mastin fit that bill and has throughout these 10 years, even, even when there were some challenges, um, it has, it has fit that screen. And so I'm, I keep working at it. Uh, so what the heck do we do? So we have this vehicle that can land rocket powered lander. Yes. There are other big rockets that land now, but back then it had been done by large government programs and this competition of which there were only two that actually made it all the way to the final competition. And so, okay, well, what do we, how do we take this and turn this into a, a business? And the big idea, and I'm going to fit in this kind of government sales thing is that the, the large vision of space was that this is going to move from being government to being commercial and people are going to buy their ticket and they're going to go to space or they're going to buy cargo and things are going to go and everyone's going to be using space and we're going to open use of space to everyone because it's going to be commercial. And that is a great vision of the future. It was not the reality of the customer in 2010. It is not the reality of the customer in 2020. And so understanding the difference between I'm going to solve this problem for this industry by getting away from government. Is an, it might be a that might be the right answer, but be careful about confusing this ideal future state with the states you have to be in to get from here to there. Um, so, what we focused then on is the thing that we had that worked. I had a rocket-powered lander. Who needs a rocket-powered lander? Um, 
it's a very small market, but the, the thing that we found that resonated was we had a rocket powered lander that you could come fly on. And I can offer rocket flights as a service instead of selling vehicles or selling programs that can cost, you know, 30 million, 50 million. And, you know, for less than a million dollars, we can test your thing out. And so we, we figured out that there was a market for doing these terrestrial test flights. And it wasn't because of a business case analysis. And it wasn't because uh, I, I spent a bunch of time studying market reports. The reason we are successful today is because there were people working for NASA, government employees that saw the value we could provide and a need that they saw existing within the agency. And they brought them together. And so first up, <laughs> the idea that it's industry versus NASA for space or any of these things, that it's, that it's industry versus the government is far too, too, far too great a simplification and probably absolutely incorrect. So what we did then is we, we took a, a service, a rocket-powered landing testbed, which, and I've described it from a business perspective, I'll say it does precisely what nobody needs. And you're like, wait, what? <laughs> it is, it does not, our service to this day does not meet the desires of the testing community. It doesn't meet their, their high level objectives. What it does is exist. <laughs> so because I have a thing that I can do, the people are willing to use it and build up until some point we will have that higher capability. Um, and so that's like, it's, it's weird because if you, if you ask, if you did a market survey and said, okay, well, what does the industry want? You would say, okay, well, it wants all these things and we can't do that. So therefore we need to invest and we need to build the next thing and yada, yada, yada. Um, but that was not a, that's not a, uh, a business plan that would close. So using the thing we have working with the customers to meet needs they have right now is kind of the, the thing that we did for years. Now, along with that, we were trying to take, and we were taking the technology and spreading it out into other, other applications. So we were working on technology development, getting, you know, working with government agencies to develop some technologies. Um, and then taking what we had for that low level vehicle and applying it to other markets. And there were two that we had identified and Dave Mastin, the founder and now CTO, um, kind of had from the get-go the idea of reusable launch vehicle. 
he, along with a couple other people that you're probably familiar with, had a, had the same idea and were <laughs> similarly, um, you know, mocked for that idea. Um, so what you can do with the reusable rocket is I can reduce my costs of operation if I reuse the vehicle. Yay. Um, and then to a certain degree, the, the payload doesn't care, right? If I'm buying delivery to orbit, I just need to get to orbit. I don't care how you get me there. I just want to get there. So one angle to the business was launch and using reusability in launch. The other one is where is a rocket powered lander uniquely suited to meet a, a need. Uh, and there are places where planes and helicopters can't go places where you don't have runways, places where you don't have air, <laughs> places yeah. where the air is too thin, places that are too dangerous. So you have a whole series of things there. Um, but the moon is one of those places. You're not going to land with a parachute. You're not going to land with, you know, you, you have pretty much two options to land on the moon. You either uh, crash into it or you do some sort of propulsive landing. So we knew those were the things. But much like the adage of, you know, can you stay liquid longer than the market can stay irrational? <laughs> John Keynes. Can you like, so we had this, we had big correct ideas, but the timing wasn't right. And so what we, part of the through broken glass has been stringing together customers creating value as some of these large trends turn over in time. And so you know, it's, and I don't know if I've, if this version of the story speaks to the decision makers that are potentially listening in, but it's hard to know, you know, what's the difference between grit and perseverance versus being stubborn. Right. You know, it, it, they are largely indistinguishable except through the lens of history. And maybe there's, I don't know, I'll let, maybe there's, you've got another guest who can speak to <laughs> discerning those ones. But we, we have been able to persist focused largely on revenue. And I can talk about the trying to raise money in the space world and all of that stuff. But this is more about the, the customer side of thing. And in order to support ourselves off of revenue, realized revenue, actually getting a thing done, giving someone the value that they're paying for, that customer or the payer for us has largely been government. And even those deals and projects and things that we have worked that are not a government entity that are you know, commercial customer, a lot of their business is for the government. And so either directly or indirectly, I came finally to realize, ah, I should stop thinking about the market in terms of what could be and focus on what is. Um, and so we've been able to be successful building and flying rockets. We've had, uh, you know, we had a, a big 
DARPA program a couple of years ago. Uh, three companies were selected to design a reusable booster, Maston Space Systems, and then two other companies no one's heard of, um, Boeing uh, and Northrop Grumman. Oh, yeah, those, those has-beens. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and you will also note there was a bunch of other companies that did not win that one. So we had that contract that was phenomenal. Um, we learned a lot. We grew a lot. But the market for that had turned a little crazy, and I had to make the this this was a decision uh, a decision point. I did I decided to put our launch the applying our technology to a launch solution. I put it on ice because everyone and their brother had started a launch company, and uh, I can't. I was burdened with the reality of understanding how hard some of this stuff is, and I could not lie and just say, oh, yeah, we can do this. This will be easy. Like, I, I know it's not going to be easy. Uh, and so some people had the benefit of idealism and enthusiasm, or maybe they, they were 10 times smarter than us. But I know, I know enough to know. You know some of some of your some of the bold proclamations of what you're going to do aren't going to pan out. So, um, fortunately, by the time that happened, the other piece of what we were expecting to come around was was growing. We had been quietly working for that last decade on the lunar lander side of things. But what I didn't do was bother talking about it. <laughs> um, why? Well, there was a Google Lunar X Prize competition going on that we were, we had supported companies, but we were not directly competing in. And I felt that the market wasn't real yet. There, I, I, did, I did not see the ability to actually get dollars like committed and flowing. That was anticipated to change. It did change. And now, as of today, not only do we have government buying delivery of payloads to the moon, similar to they buy payload delivery to the International Space Station. Mastin has not only the, the broad general contract, but a specific task order. And so we've been selected to deliver a series of instruments for NASA. Uh, and now it's time to put our, <laughs> put all of this decade in my case and decade and a half in Dave's case to work delivering payloads to the moon for the government, for NASA, uh, for other government agencies, and for commercial markets as well. So I get to serve right. all of them. I want to I interject a little <laughs> bit because that, that one decision point you talked about where you had to decide if you're going to be in a launch business or the landing business, I think was really important. And and tell me if I'm wrong, but I, I suspect they're, they're kind of two, they're, they're two big factors at work. Number one, is that I don't think you had the resources really to pursue both. You kind of had to make a decision, just put all your, your chips into one square. And then second, you know, it occurs to me, not that I want to understate the difficulty, <laughs> but let's face it, a lot more, there have been a lot more spacecraft that have been launched than have been landed. <laughs> right? uh, so isn't, yes. the trick of a, isn't the trick of a soft landing 
Oh God! Yeah. Isn't, isn't isn't that kind of a a more rare thing? Yes. Yeah. So let, let me address the technology piece of it first. Absolutely. Um, going up is easy. We've kind of known how to do that for a long time. Coming down is even easier. Even longer amount of time, we figured out how gravity works. It's that controlled landing that is the really hard part. And so, yes, absolutely. Now, what I can tell you is that with with that understanding, Dave started out focused on the hardest part first. And that's why the company has, we have more flight operations. We have done more rocket landings than anyone. But we're not bringing it back from space. We had focused on, think of it as doing more diverse stuff rather than altitude. And, and you know, there was, a, there was a decision point earlier on where I was like, okay, do we focus on going higher and faster or do we focus on doing more, refining more of the landing? So the landing stuff, I feel pretty good about. I feel like we have decent enough understanding. I know there's things that we know. I know there's things that we don't know because we actually have, we thought we had the whole thing figured out and then we found out we didn't. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, we've gone through that iteration. That was the landing part is the thing that has really been a core asset of ours. And it's not just, and this is in a lot of industries and especially in space, really like the superlatives of saying first but first is nice for a press release repeatable reliable is what you need for the business and so just because you did something first doesn't mean squat if it never goes anywhere right if it never gets you anywhere and a lot of times because of the long timelines, everything people are are grasping. They're they're seeking something to differentiate themselves and say, "Aha! Look, I did I did this, and that's great." But I am less interested personally as the the business side of things. I don't care about your feat of rocketry, of technical performance. What I care about is, are you creating value for your partner? Are you are you helping make them rock stars inside their organization? Are you helping find ways to, to make someone else's life better today? And so, yes, the landing is part is hard. That was not actually the problem. And I'll, I, I have spent a lot of time obsessing over this question of diversification versus focus. Diversification versus focus. The best practice for entrepreneurship is laser-like focus. Pick a thing and do that. I understand and I agree. However, <laughs> that's not exactly what we've done. And I've we were keeping multiple things open at the same time, and here's the reason why. For space, there are a few... It's, it's a small N. We're talking statistics. Yep. A few big events that happen infrequently. So I can I could choose. Oh, we're going to be all in on the moon. Great. 
And if that had been the decision in 2011, that had been fine, but we would have run out of money and gone out of business. I could have said we're all in on launch. And then when launch dried up and we, you know, weren't selected for the next DARPA phase, we could have been out of business there. And so I, I, it is a, it is a difficult thing that I've grappled with because I understand the best practice and yet have chosen a different approach. And so right now, the way I frame it is delivery to the moon is our flagship. That is the thing that is very clear. That is the big thing that what gains people's attention. And I can show you how the other work that we're doing aligns with providing value to the people who want to get access to the surface of the moon. And so, so our terrestrial of, flights. Yeah. Sorry about that. Um, no, no, the, that's okay. The, what I, what I take <laughs> out of that is, is I think a couple of very important points is that one misconception is that selling to the government is fundamentally different from selling to private sector clients. But what you're telling me is at the end of the day, it's still about providing value, even okay. if value might be defined somewhat differently. And it's about making, it's about making your customer somehow better. And along the way, right, you talked a little bit in your, in your story about, you know, there were some strong advocates about strong advocates for Masson because they, you know, they, they got it technically and, and I presume decided to become advocates. And, and, and that tells me that, that somehow you're able to develop a relationship with the government or something in the government. And, and that, I think a lot of people wouldn't expect that that's something you could do, at least not in a typical way. Right. Right? When we think about relations with the government, we think about, uh, frankly, we, we think about uh, lobbyists and we think about uh, having your senator make a well-placed phone call to somebody. Um, but we don't, we don't think of it necessarily in terms of just good old-fashioned garden variety, people-to-people relationships but it sounds yeah. like that that actually does that actually is present yeah and by the way working in space has this problem is that it oftentimes is so cool that it distracts us from whatever other conversation we were <laughs> having so here we've talked all this stuff about Mastin and haven't really addressed some of that you know the government part so yeah for, first of all um the government you do not sell to the government uh, no organization is actually monolithic. And that's a, a mindset. Like you're not selling into a faceless blob. No matter what, whether you're selling to a small company, a big company, the government, you are selling to individuals. And that is like, that. that is the, a key thing I think some people don't quite understand. It's not like you're just throwing in a proposal and then someone throws money at you. Like there's someone on the other side of that. That is a person that has things that they're trying to accomplish. <laughs> and just like if you're selling to a, you know, a, a local mom and pop shop and you're selling them something, the same thing applies if you're selling them to the government, you've got to understand as best you can, 
what they're trying to do. And it's not maybe as easy as going in, but it's also not impossible. And it's not necessarily as hard. So um, the the perception that um, it's only for the bigs um, is not accurate. And it's demonstrably not accurate. Like there are some specific things that are clear that our federal government has interest in working with small business. I will tell you that there is uh, this thing called industry capture, where any industry that is selling to the government often has a lot of influence in what the government asks for and wants to buy. It is not necessarily this whole arms, like the ideal may be that the government chooses to acquire things and companies have to propose against it. But oftentimes the thing the government asks for is influenced and should be influenced by what the market can provide. And so it's, it is really, it is an interesting uh, challenge because from the government standpoint, their risk posture is different. It's, it's sometimes very similar to a large organization. Um, you know, it used to be, and, and every industry has the saying, no one gets fired for buying blank industry leader. No one gets fired for buying from IBM. doesn't matter if it's a good deal or a bad deal, whatever. doesn't matter. They're the industry leader. So you're not going to get in trouble if you buy from them. Well, right. And I would imagine in your, I mean, in your world, nobody gets fired for buying from Grumman or Raytheon or correct Boeing. Right. Yep. And I have to imagine that at least crossed your mind. Oh yeah. As you're <laughs> for these things. Right. So absolutely. Did, did, did it turn out that that was, did it turn out that that was a, that was a legitimate fear or yes. once you got in, did you find out that, you know, maybe they even kind of root for the little guy. There, there are, it, it or maybe depends. it's not monolithic, right? It depends. It's not right. Yeah. It's not. <laughs> um, yeah. So I don't know if it makes sense to do the, the negatives. Let me start with the negatives because better to start there. Um, there is an awful lot of process that is designed to prevent government fraud, waste, and abuse. There is a lot of things that exist to prevent the government from doing bad, stupid, fraudulent things. And you know what? On principle, everyone says, yeah, of course, we want the government to reduce fraud. There is a point, however, where you get diminishing returns. And so there is an information asymmetry for you to this particular industry. Yeah. And the incumbents who have mature processes and systems. And that becomes right there is the kind of the, the, the key difference. That information asymmetry means that you don't know about the federal acquisition requirements. And if you don't know how to quote them chapter and verse, you may wind up getting yourself into some difficulty because you have this extra burden, this extra cost of compliance. So that favors larger companies. Now, I will flip to the opposite side and say, yes, and the government is aware of that. And there are specific initiatives 
that have been around for a long time and new ones where people on the government side are trying to find ways to reduce or circumnavigate those burdens of doing business with the government. And the first one is to point out the SBIR program, Small Business Innovation and Research. And then there's an STTR, which is, oh, I don't know. Uh, I forget the acronym. Um, Science but, and Technology Transfer. Yeah. R. Research. Something like that. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> um, the the idea there is uh, this is federally mandated to be a percentage uh, of federal agency budget across, I think, 11 different agencies, and it is money that they have to spend on small businesses. Small businesses defined as less than 500 people. So this is obligated money that they have to push this way. The question is, how do you go about tapping into it? And how do you make sure that this is something that's not going to just bog you down? So um, let's, let's dive into that. So how do you, let, let's, I mean, what's the first step, right? When you figured out that you had to, that, that NASA ought to be a customer, an important customer, I mean, do you just do you just call NASA up and say, "Hey, I've got this landing system, and hey, you might want to use it to land on Mars or the the Moon or whatever"? Or yeah, how do you Here start? NASA, please buy my rocket stuff. Um, yeah, uh, door to door. I mean, hey, bud, you want to buy my landing system? Yeah. So the 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 first thing to do is not to build a rocket. The first thing to do is go talk to people and understand their pain points. Um, and so I will, I will refer you to the customer discovery model and um, the i and um, Steve Blank and understand the pain in the market first and then build a solution to it. Uh, how do you get, how do you understand a pain in the market? Well, um, there are a lot of things that are available. So n number one, go look at the previous SBIR solicitations and the topics that are there. And you can read through what has been selected and you can call those companies. You can call those sponsors. Most government officials probably have phone numbers and contact information available publicly that you don't have to pay for because it's probably required one way or another. So you can, you can actually pick up the phone and call people and say, Hey, I saw the solicitation was out last year. Do you guys get what you need? Or are you looking for something different? What's coming up in the future? Ask the questions. Um, reading industry papers, the scientists and the, you know, engineers that write industry trade papers, whatever that is, look them up call them up, I can tell you they love talking about those papers that they wrote. And I will also tell you, most people don't read those papers and don't refer to them. And you will immediately, if you have, if you have a topic and you actually like pick up and read their thing, they'll be thrilled to talk about the thing that they spent their time writing that paper on and can help guide you into, okay, well, here's a pain point that I know somebody has. Um, and then the other one, uh, is, uh, just show up and be useful. Um, go to conferences, 
volunteer. If you're trying to get into an industry, find an industry group, volunteer to serve on a panel, to do a thing, to take tickets and wave us, whatever. Become part of the community, become a known entity, and that way you can help work your way in. So I know I just said kind of network your way into the government. It sounds kind of odd, but again, it's not the government. It is probably an agency and more particularly a directorate and more particularly a group and more particularly a set of, you know, 50 to 100 people that maybe are that work in and around whatever domain you have interest in. So the, the, how to get in, that's my my recommendation uh, for that is it, it is kind of pick up the phone, but start with the questions. Um, no, let me let me ask you this: How did you find the government or NASA? I guess um, again, they're not monolithic, so I ask you to talk about what you've actually done. How have you found NASA or whatever specific office you are dealing with in NASA in terms of their responsiveness? Mm. Um, <laughs> you know, we I, I think we many of us. I, I don't want to be ideological here, um, but many yeah. of us when we think of the government, we basically think of the DMV. Yeah. Right. And everybody's a DMV and not everybody's a DMV. I don't think the DMV could could launch vehicles into orbit. Um, <laughs> but but the perception is that they're slow as molasses and it's 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 going to be a nightmare in terms of length of sales cycle. and They can't make a decision. Um, how has your experience been relative to that perception? Spot on. Really? <laughs> in in some cases, spot on, and okay. not not because um, it, it's important to realize the different objectives and the different world that your partner, your government partner, lives in. And it's one thing to say, "Well, it's crazy that this thing takes eighteen months." They might know that it's crazy, but it also might be the way things are and like it's to a certain degree some of this is a a gravity problem and this is not a space thing this is just a gravity problem is one of those ones that it's not worth getting upset about because it's just there and government bureaucracy and like if you want to skip the bureaucracy and want to just take straight payments from someone, feel free. However, you're likely to have then have to pay the price when someone says, Hey, how come you didn't follow procedures and yada, yada, yada. Right. Like, so, (laughs) um, so yes, there are some things that are absolutely infuriating. Um, sales cycle for some of these things, um, even small amounts of money can be, 18 months easily. And if you want to go all the way back to the beginning and like having the conversation with person, you want to sponsor a topic that you then apply to that you then get selected for, then you negotiate a contract for then start executing on that, you know, two years for a small business. I don't know about you, but my lifestyle, like we're fruit flies. I I live week to week, day to day, month to month. Yeah, well, the, it, you know, it definitely requires. Go ahead. Sorry. No, no. It's just, it's it's an entirely different thing, and what you it's not worth 
railing against it to say, oh, it's not fair. It's not right. You know what? It's not fair and it's not right. And it doesn't matter. It is. And so play the game, play the field, understand that it's going to take that long and figure out, you know, maybe the choice is you don't want to do it or, and I will then, let me also flip around to the other side and say, doing a a project with the, the air force and I'm not kidding you on this. We submitted a proposal. We were contacted nine, nine days later on a Saturday telling us we had been selected. And we had a contract a week after that. That is unheard of. It was only 50K, but it doesn't matter. That is the speed that is. And why are they moving that fast? Because DOD realized that they have made it so difficult to work with that the best and brightest are busy building, you know, the next Uber app and are not even engaging with the government. They don't need, I don't need to bother with your process and your BS and all the rest of it. I am just going to sell my stuff to someone who can pay me and I don't have to deal with the FAR and I don't have to deal with all this other crap. So there are, there are pieces that are in effect uh, sometimes they're referred to as other transaction authority, OTA. And, and this can be a program if it's set up that way, where the government can have reduced amount of um, certification, uh, all of this other stuff that goes on. Um, but you've got to have someone that's willing to find and exercise those things. And let me just real quick because I talked about SBIR and I talked about the long sales cycle and how much of a pain in the butt it is. And for $125,000, like it just doesn't make sense, but this is the thing. And it's, it's, you have to add even more time to get to this point. Phase one might be, might be 50, might be 150 K, not a whole lot. Phase twos might be half a million to a million and a half. That's better, right? You do successful and then, but yield on an SBIR, depending upon the agency, 15%, sometimes less. Phase one to phase two, maybe 50%. But once you have completed an SBIR successfully, phase one, now you have a contract vehicle that will allow someone in the government to sole source a contract to you as long as it relates to that topic. And so I'm going to bring it back to what I said at the very beginning. Someone wanting to buy the thing you're selling, the service or product, having the budget and the money to pay for it, and you need a way for them to be able to get that to you. If you think about your business, and you set it up so that you are building customers and building budgets to support and building a portfolio of contracts that can be used to send business to you, it can open this whole world up. So it's, it is a big wall on the front, but can be very beneficial once you get through it. So, um, we're, we're talking with Sean Mahoney of Mass and Space Systems. Um, 
I think a takeaway from that is that if you are personally or institutionally impatient, selling to the government is probably not for you. It does require there. Yeah. I mean, again, there's a nine day contract and so forth, but yeah, yeah, let's face it. If if you're just the impatient type. Yeah. Or or find someone to partner with who will take half of the value of the contract or more and handle all that stuff for you. Okay. Right. If you're really impatient, but you got something that's really valuable. Hey, hey, as long don't complain about giving up a whole bunch, you know, oh, well, I did all this work. Mm, yep, but you can't sell to anybody, so it doesn't matter, <laughs> right? Um, but yeah, it, it, is not, it is not for the impatient. But then again, I would say entrepreneurship is not for the impatient. Like, it, it takes time. You need to move extraordinarily quick every day, but then also it's a marathon, right? So you got to do both. You got to sprint every day in a marathon and keep your wits about you. Um, and it's, I don't know, it, it's phenomenal, but it's not easy to say the least. Um, so uh, we're, we're, we're running out of time, but there are a couple more questions. I want to try to sneak in here right. if I can. Um, one question is about cost sensitivity. You oh, know, yeah. on, on the one hand, you hear about the government that, they always go to the lowest bidder. On the other hand, you hear about $500 toilet seats. Yeah. Um, in your experience, what's the reality there? Different types of contract. So you have a cost plus contract where the government will choose a vendor and then basically you do change orders to keep adding things on. Yeah. Or, um, and then, or you then have firm fixed price contracts, which is this is the thing you deliver it regardless. Now in an ideal world, things that are mature would be that firm fixed price because you know, your cost of production and it, you know, you're selling pencils to the government. Fine. In reality, things have kind of become inverted. And so Mastin as a small research company is doing firm fixed price contracting for highly uncertain projects because they're R&D. I'm willing to take that risk. I have to build my pricing to the government sufficiently to cover my risk or be willing to, you know, allow a a given contract to put me under. Um, Does the government care about price? Yes. And no. Uh, (laughs) Okay. It, I, I wish I could say it's it's one it's one single answer. It's it's not. Um, I will say to the entrepreneurs, selling on price is very difficult, and it can kill you. If you think uh, I will cut my rate to the government in order to win this contract but you can't pay yourself, then you will die because you're not getting enough. And that those same asymmetries I talked about earlier can, can, can bite you here. Um, I am a strong advocate for the idea of SBIR programs, basically just coming up with a standard, like a standard deduction on your tax form. They should have a standard rate and say, we're going to pay 
200 bucks an hour on an ESBIR, whatever it is. Um, in reality, you have to submit your pricing, even on a firm fixed thing, you have to go through negotiations. My recommendation is use Bureau of Labor Statistics numbers, use those industry numbers that you can, and do not allow the fact that you are taking less than market salary and then passing that direct benefit on into an SBIR program. If, because then you will, you'll never get yourself out of it, right? Um, and so that's one of the things that I'm, I did not agree to price our services at the obscenely low rate that we pay ourselves divided by 2,000 hours and say, okay, you can buy an hour, one hour at you know, one, two thousandths of our salary. Right. No, that just, that is not a sustainable business. So don't, I'm not saying government's going to buy gold plated stuff, but I am saying don't sell on price because regardless of your son of the government or anything else, selling on price is a bad idea. Sean, um, there's a lot of stuff we could still cover, um, but um, and I, but I also know you're really busy. But if if somebody wanted yeah. to ask you more about selling to the government, your experience with it, how can people contact you? Can people contact you? And if so, how could they do it? Yes, you can absolutely contact me, um, S Mahoney uh, at Maston dot arrow a e r o. That's my email. I cannot guarantee you <laughs> that I'm going to uh, be able to catch every single one. But what I'd be happy to do, um, if there are folks that are interested from, from this conversation, uh, I'm happy to pull folks together and do another kind of, you know, seminar Q&A sort of thing. Um, we're a little bit busy. I am trying to get us on our way to the moon, but I absolutely believe in making sure we're taking others with us. I want, I have benefited from your advice and guidance and from others in the Atlanta area, um, throughout the space industry and, um, you know, in honoring the support they've given us, I'm, I'm doing the same. It doesn't have to be space related. Um, we're absolutely trying to make sure that we, uh, we don't pull up the ladder behind us and share some of the things that we've learned to help others, so, um, yeah, drop me an email and, um, we'll make sure we, we set something up and, and, um, if you get hammered with questions about this stuff, I'm happy to, to do a second round less about the space stuff and more about some of those crazy, uh, contracting stories, which I'm happy to share as well. So very good. Well, um, that's going to wrap it up for today's program. And I'd like to thank Sean Mahoney of Maston space system so much for joining us and sharing his expertise. We'll be exploring a new topic each week. So please tune in so that when you're faced with the next decision, you have clear clear vision when making it. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving a review with your favorite podcast aggregator. It helps people find us so that we can help them. Once again, this is Mike Blake, our sponsor is Bradyware and Company, and this has been the Decision Vision Podcast. Send something to